Well, I was 20 years old and uh, madly in love with a girl who would eventually become my wife. Sue and I were sophomores in college, and I was, I was having a hard time uh, winning her heart. And so I decided to do something dramatic. Uh, I sat down and I wrote a song, a love song, on my guitar, and I made plans to sing it under her dorm room window one evening. Now, I would not recommend this for those of you who are currently dating, all right? So no guarantee that it's going to work. This was a blues song. Uh, Sue's maiden name was McCune, and so the chorus that repeated again and again was, Sue McCune, you make me swoon, you got me out here singing this song. I was not the best lyricist in the world, okay? And I was not a great guitarist either, so I recruited a buddy of, of mine to add some extra guitar licks on his instrument. And then we grabbed a couple of stools and our guitars and we made our way to a dark spot under Sue's window. I can't even remember what floor of the dorm she was on. And I, and I belted out my song. Now, if you think this is crazy, I just got to tell you, it worked. All right, because I've been married to that girl for 38 years and we're still wildly in love. All right, so yeah. But here was the intent of my song. This proclamation of love was intended not just for Sue's ears. Fact of the matter was, I wanted the world to hear. I wanted the whole world. And as I recollect, you know, there were a lot of girls who came to their dorm room windows looking out, wondering who is making all this racket. And, and there were people coming by, students coming from the library and whatever, who stopped on the sidewalk to listen to my song. As I recall, the stars in the sky twinkled in delight <laughs> as they heard me sing. That may be just a little bit of overstatement, but uh, today we're going to look at a song of proclamation in the Bible. And this song does not proclaim the greatness of the songwriter's girlfriend, it proclaims the greatness of the songwriter's God. And this is a song, this is a song for all of us who love God. It's a song we, we, we want to sing, not only for the sake of God's ears, but we want the whole world to hear it. Okay, so if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn with me to the middle of your Bible, Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Today is the fifth installment in a six-week series we're doing in the book of Psalms. The series is called Playlist, Psalms for the Head and Heart. And we'll, we'll be culminating the series this week. This is Holy Week. This launches Holy Week. And on Good Friday, we'll be doing a sixth psalm that points to Jesus' death on the cross. And next weekend, Easter services, we're going to do a seventh psalm that points to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So I hope you've found Psalm 96 in your Bible or on your mobile app. And the, the first thing I want you to note about Psalm 96 is that there's no superscription at the beginning of it. So I've explained this to you in, in past weeks. Uh, the Psalms were written, 150 Psalms, by a variety of writers over several centuries, and then eventually collected into one book, at which time an ancient editor added superscriptions, the little italicized words you see before verse 1. And the superscriptions were intended by the editor to, to help us understand who wrote the particular Psalm, and under what, what circumstances it was written. But you look at Psalm 96, no superscription. But that's okay because we know exactly who wrote it and what the circumstances were because Psalm 96 is quoted in its entirety in another book in the Old Testament. 
In Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we're told that David penned these words, and he penned them for a special occasion. He was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And this was a song that was going to be sung by this huge worship parade making its way to the city. Now, I've I've told you a little bit of this story before. The Ark had been in enemy hands. And this was uh, the reason for this uh, years before David became Israel's second king. In fact, years before there was even a king in Israel. The Israelites had been at war with the Philistines, and there was a big battle brewing, and some knucklehead on the Israelite side decided it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to the battle as a sort of lucky charm. Bad idea, because the Israelites not only lost the battle, they lost the Ark. The Philistines captured the Ark, and they took it to their home city. This is now years later. David has become king. David has defeated the Philistines. He's recaptured the ark. He's bringing it to Jerusalem where he will reign as king over every other king. In fact, Jerusalem had just become his capital city. He had taken it from the Jebusites, defeated the Jebusites, and because Jerusalem was on a prominent hill, he thought, this would be a good place for a capital city. This is where I can reign as the most powerful powerful king in the region. But by bringing the ark to Jerusalem, he wanted to make an additional statement. This is one of the first things he did. He wanted to make the statement that not only will I be king over all other kings, but my God will be God over all other gods. Because just as I whooped the king of the Philistines and the king of the Jebusites and other kings, so so my God has defeated all other gods. And so he writes Psalm 96 as a song of the greatness, proclaiming the greatness of God. Not only for God's ears, but he wants all the world to hear And he wants everybody who loves God to sing this song. So let me read the opening verses of Psalm 96 to you. We're going to learn three truths about God's greatness. And the first truth has to do with God's worldwide salvation. So if you haven't taken your outline from the program yet, take it out, fill in that first blank. A worldwide salvation. Let me begin reading verse 1 of Psalm 96. David says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. I'm calling Psalm 96 a song of proclamation, and you can see why in these opening verses there there are many truths about God that David encourages us to proclaim, but they all seem to revolve around one central truth, the truth of God's worldwide salvation. Look at verse 2. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim. Proclaim what? Proclaim his salvation day after day. Proclaim God's salvation. Now, salvation is a broad term in the Bible. Uh, Salvation includes, for example, God's ability to save us from earthly enemies. 
You know, God can save us from uh, wicked people. He could save us from sickness, from tragedy, from self-destructive sinful patterns in our lives. He could save us from depression. He could save us from desperate financial needs. God can save us from these earthly enemies. But more importantly, in Scripture, salvation speaks of God's ability to save us from the worst enemy of all, eternal death. God is a God of salvation. And David says that we're to proclaim God's salvation, not only for God to hear our praise, but for all the world to hear this important message. In fact, look at the many references that David makes in the opening verses to the worldwide nature of our proclamation. Second line of verse one, he says, sing to the Lord all the earth. First line of verse three, declare his glory among the nations. Second line of verse 3, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. You see this? All the earth, the nations, all peoples. David wants everybody everywhere to hear about God's salvation. Now, there are two sides to this message of salvation that we're to proclaim. You know, the, the, the first side we've already mentioned is that God can save You heard me say all the things God can save us from, but there's a flip side to this message. The flip side of this message is that other gods can't save. Other gods can't save. I don't know if you saw that in the opening verses. Maybe as I, I, I read it, it made you just a little bit uncomfortable because David seems to throw political correctness, multiculturalism, he throws it out the window. I mean, look at the closing line of verse 4, the opening line of verse 5. David says, the Lord is to be, to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. You read that in our culture today and you say, whoa, Davy boy, you're not supposed to say those kinds of things. You know, you don't put down other people's gods. You don't say, yeah, my God's stronger than your God. But David's language is actually... It's actually even stronger in the original Hebrew of Psalm 96. The the word for idols is in verse 5. All the gods of the nations are idols. It's the word Elohim, which means literally, in the Hebrew, it means no thing. So the gods of the nations that they consider their big thing, David says, no, they're actually no thing. They're non-entities. Now, if that sounds harsh to our ears, like a rude put-down on David's part, please understand that what he's trying to do, he's trying to turn people away from gods that can't save them. He's trying to turn them away from gods that can't save them. You know, back to the, the background of this story, and this is kind of an amusing part. I mentioned that he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, that it had been in Philistine hands. They had captured the Ark. When they first captured the Ark, the Philistines, they took it back to their capital city and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Big statue of Dagon. The next morning, they walk into the temple. You could read this in 1 Samuel 5. You know, it's a bit hilarious. They walk into the temple and there is Dagon flat down on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And so so you know what they do? They set Dagon back on his feet. Now, you stop and think about that for a minute. You want a a God that you got to help back to his feet? We'll get this God up. Oh, there you go, God. 
And so they set him back up, and the next day they walk in, and this time he's fallen over on his face again before the Ark of the Covenant, but his hands and his head are broken off. Just a symbolic way of saying, this God can't save you. This God's got no power. The Lord can save people other gods can't. Which is why David says, we, we, you know, we've got to sing this song of proclamation and we've got to sing it all over the world because every nation needs to hear it. You know, my, my, my college alma mater has been in the national news recently and it's not because we got a team in the NCAA playoffs. And I went to a small Christian college, Wheaton College, not too far from here, but they made national news because they let a professor go because she, she made a very public statement that the God of the Muslims and the God of the Christians is the same God. Now, 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 I believe behind her statement was a noble effort to express solidarity with decent Muslim people, to say, hey, too much Muslim bashing going on in our country. I think she's right on target in that regard. But to say that there... there no way is Allah the same God as the God of the Bible, friends. All you got to do is read a Quran next to a Bible. You'll see two totally different gods. Only one of these gods is known for his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. Only one of these gods is known as the one who so desperately loves us that he will go to great lengths. He will sacrifice his son if that's what it takes to bring us back to himself. That's why some Christ followers decide to give their lives as missionaries in faraway places. Muslim countries saying, Allah can't save you, but I know a God who can. You know, that's why Christ followers at Christ Community Church, hundreds of you, every year, you go on go team trips. Six countries we serve in, several of them Muslim countries, to say, you know, Allah can't save you, but there's a God, there's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he can. You know, let me quickly add that Allah is not the only powerless God out there. You know, people need to be turned away from other gods, the gods of our culture, our Western culture. You say, well, what gods are you talking about? Well, friends, a god, by definition, a god is anything in a person's life that becomes an ultimate priority. A god is anything in a person's life that becomes an ultimate priority. A god can be anything that people depend upon to make them happy or to give their lives purpose or significance. A god is, is anything which people lavish their time and their affection and their financial resources on. If your life, if your world revolves around something today, that's your god. People make gods out of jobs, they make gods out of grandkids, out of sports teams, out of being popular at school, they make gods out of hobbies, pets, time spent on their smartphones, you know, things they can't live without. And these gods have one thing in common, they can't save us. 
They can't save us short term in the daily affairs of our lives. They're powerless to save us. They can't save us in the ultimate sense from eternal death. And this is why Christ followers must sing this song of proclamation. We got to sing it loud. We got to sing it clear. We got to sing it for all our friends and neighbors and family members and schoolmates and co-workers to hear. We got to sing the song telling people where salvation comes from. In fact, David, in the opening three verses of Psalm 96, he uses six imperatives, six commands, six gottas in three verses. The first three are all the same. He says, sing, 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 and then he says, praise, proclaim, declare. Those are all in the imperative voice, all commands given to us. He's telling us that we got to communicate this message of worldwide salvation. This is not an optional activity for Christ followers. This is not strictly what the gung-ho among us do. These are commands for every true believer. Because, because we live in a world that's putting their trust in gods that can't save. And if you know the God who can save, you've got an obligation to share that news. You know, which is why we give you some special opportunities to do that at Christ's community. If you want to share this good news worldwide, we'll put you on a go team trip. In fact, this summer, we'll be headed off to four out of the six countries in which we serve. This is the time of the year right now where you sign up for a Go Team trip. We're going to send an additional team back to Greece to work with Syrian refugees. We had a team just come back last night. We're going to send another team locally but, but sort of cross-culturally, we're going to send them to Camp Riverwoods on the Fox River in St. Charles that reaches inner-city kids, kids who come from troubled backgrounds. You know, so you, if you want to sing this song of proclamation, this song of salvation, we'll give you the opportunity to do it. The second opportunity I want to mention is next weekend. Easter weekend, who will you invite? You know, I've told you before, and I keep checking the surveys to see if this is recent in, in information, and it is. According to surveys, most unchurched people say that they'd come to church if a friend invited them. So people think, well, it's Easter. People will come to church. No, they won't. But they will come to church if you say, would you come to church with me? So will you invite them? Will, will you bring them with you next weekend to hear about God's worldwide salvation? Second aspect of God's greatness in Psalm 96 has to do with worldwide worship. So let's continue reading the psalm. We left off at verse 6, pick it up at verse 7. David says, Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The, the worldwideness of this worship is emphasized by a couple of phrases in these verses. Middle of verse 7, all you families of nations are called to worship. Last line of verse 9, all the earth join in this worship. See, every genuine follower of Jesus Christ everywhere is part of the choir. You know, if you're a real deal believer, you, you love to worship. You love to sing God's praise. If you, if you don't love to worship, something's wrong. 
Now, now let, me, let me quickly describe for you four, uh, three aspects of worship that I see in, in Psalm 96. The first is that it's enthusiastic. This is enthusiastic worship, and Bible scholars point out that there's a sort of cadence that builds and builds and builds in Psalm 96. So in the first couple of verses, David says in quick repetition, sing, 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 and then you get down to verses 7 and 9, and it's, it's ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. There's, there's this pulsating rhythm that keeps growing and growing. You can imagine people singing, getting louder and louder as they sing this song of proclamation. You know, last weekend... Sue and I were worshiping uh, with a congregation down in Haiti. So that's one of our six partnerships. And so we traveled down there, not on a go team, but just as, as, as senior leaders to hang with a senior leader of their ministry down there, a Pastor Will Jean, who has started 12 churches, 12 churches in northern Haiti, along with a medical clinic, an orphanage, a school for children. And so on Saturday night, he announced to us that we were going to travel about an hour into Capetian, a very bustling city, to visit one of the churches, a church that has grown to 2,000 people already, that particular congregation. And so he said, by the way, the service starts at 6 a.m. And he said, and oh, I got to tell you, it's three hours long. Whoa. Don't you ever complain about the length of the services at Christ Community Church. And so, so we got up early. We actually arrived early at this church. I was semi-comatose. And so, so they enlisted us to help set up chairs on the roof of the building. See, the cinder block, simple cinder block building, it was all set up filled with chairs, but they expected as they get every weekend overflow crowds, so we set up an additional two to three hundred chairs, the most raggedy folding chairs you've seen in your life, missing a leg, back torn off, you know, I said to one of the guys helping me, I said, I said you know, these chairs need to go to the dump, he said, where do you think we got them from? <laughs> So as the service is about to begin, Sue and I were taken inside where it's like a bazillion degrees and it's packed with, it's 6 a.m. and it's wall-to-wall -wall people in their Sunday best. I've never seen so many guys in ties at church or women in dresses at church. You know, unbelievable. And they're, they're ready to go. And the service begins, everybody stands to their feet and they, for 10 minutes, they recite scripture by heart. And I, and I asked Pastor Will John about this, and I discovered that every year they get a new list of Bible verses to, to memorize, and they memorize the verses, and every service begins by standing to their feet and reciting the verses they've memorized. Good idea. We ought to try that, huh? <laughs> wow. Talk about pumping them full of God's word. And then the music began. The loudest music I've ever heard. Rock concerts and, and whatever included. I was right next to the band and they had the amps turned up. Again, if you've ever complained about the volume of our music, you're going on the next go team to Haiti. You know, we're going to send you there. And so the people jump to their feet and their faces are beaming and their fists are pumping the air. And they're singing like they mean every word of the songs they sing. That's what I mean about enthusiastic worship. Sing, 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 ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Second characteristic of this worship that I see in Psalm 96 is that it's costly. Look at verse 8 again. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. 
Bible scholars say that the word for offering in this verse is a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of gifts, the kinds of gifts that you would bring to a king. So when you you come, be prepared to give and be prepared to give something that's fit for a king. I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I've, I'm sure, said it myself. You know, if a service is really good, people walk out saying, I got something out of that one. And if the service in their minds is just okay, Pastor Jim's not on his game, the worship was, eh, you know, they say, I didn't get anything out of that. You say that to David, you know what he'd say to you? You don't come to get, you come to give. You come to bring an offering to the Lord. What kind of an offering? Well, obviously a financial gift. You know, we collect our, our offering, literally, our tithes, the first 10% of our income. Does your contribution say, my God is a great king, here's a gift fit for a king, here's a gift I'd bring to this king's birthday? But, it, but it's not just a monetary gift, it's the gift of our praise. You know, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, verse 17, says, bring to God a sacrifice of praise. You say, sacrifice. Why is praising God a sacrifice? Well, because it doesn't, doesn't take anything for us to sing half-heartedly. It doesn't take anything to not sing at all. See, it becomes a sacrifice when, when you walk in the door and it's a weekend, you, you don't feel like singing, but you praise God anyway. It's a weekend when you walk in, in the door and you've had a crappy week and you sing from your heart anyway. It's, it's a week where you drove in your car and your kids were fighting in the back seat the whole way to church, doggone it, and you walk in and you sing your praise anyway as a sacrifice of praise. You get it? Good. It may cost you something. You might not, might not like the song that we're singing. You might not know the song that we're singing. But you say, I'm going to throw myself into this because genuine worship is costly. Third word I want to give you that's descriptive of this worship is reverent. Go back to verse 9. He says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. What's the next word? Say it. Tremble. No, you did not say it. Now, I don't know if you said it at the other campuses, but it was weak here in St. Charles. So what is the next word? Tremble. Tremble before him all the earth. We worship a God whose presence is so awe-inspiring that it gives us the shakes. We tremble when we sing about the splendor of his holiness at our weekend services. You know, when the band begins to play, and we're having little chit-chats in the, in the lobby, we turn to our friend and we say, hey, see you after the service. We make a beeline into the auditorium to sing from our hearts. We turn off our cell phone. We put it away. We turn to any family member who's disinterested in sitting down, and we say, get to your feet. This is an awesome God we're about to worship. We, 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 we tremble before him. We don't care. We don't, we don't care if we sing off key. We don't care what the person next to us thinks if we fist pump the air. We don't care because we're not focused on them. We're focused on a God who shakes the earth. 
Thank you for the amen. Yes. When we close today, we'll have fun, one final worship service. We'll see if we shake the place, okay? See, the, the worship that David describes in Psalm 96 is enthusiastic, it's costly, it's reverent, and let me remind you, it, it, you know, it's worldwide. These Christ followers are worshiping God around the world. In fact, I don't know if you, you think like this when, when you arrive at one of our four campuses on a weekend. always crosses my mind. I'm about to join in praise being given to God that's being offered all over the world. I mean, if you think it's cool because you're into basketball and you flip on March Madness and, oh, how many people are watching this all over the... It is nothing compared to the worldwide worship of God that's going on this weekend. And next weekend, Easter weekend, the world's going to rock. Yes. This... This is a God who's being worshipped. If you're a God worshiper, you're part of a worldwide movement. In fact, at the end of time, in a new heaven and a new earth, Jesus Christ is going to be praised according to Revelation 5, verse 9, last book of the Bible. He's going to be praised by people from every tribe and language and people group and nation, and it's going to go on forever. And if you don't find that exciting, it may be because you don't know the God that David's talking about in Psalm 96, because this is a worship-inspiring God. And when you know him, you just you can't hold it back. So worldwide worship, one final truth about this God in Psalm 96 has to do with a worldwide judgment. Pick it up at verse 10. David says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Did you notice the multiple times that David refers to God's judgment in these verses? This is where it's good to bring your own Bible because you get to mark it up. So mark it up as we go. Look at verse 10. He will judge the peoples with equity. Drop down to the middle of verse 13. He comes to judge the earth. Circle that one too. And again in the next line, a third one. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world. Worldwide judgment. Now, friends, this is a truth about God that we tend to downplay today. You know, those of us who are Christ followers were fond of speaking about God as a heavenly father. He's a gracious savior. He's a, he's a good shepherd. He's the solid rock I'm building my life on. But how about this one? He's the coming judge. See, that doesn't have a positive ring to it, does it? And yet, in Psalm 96, David seems overjoyed that God is coming as a judge. I mean, look at all, all the upbeat words that David uses in these verses to describe God's judgment. Verse 11, rejoice. Later on in the verse, be glad. Verse 12, be jubilant. Later on in the verse, sing for joy. Next verse, verse 13, rejoice. Whoa! Why all this celebrating? Well, he tells us in the middle of verse 13, it's because the Lord comes to judge the earth. Yay! You say, whoa, whoa. like this is good news? 
Well, there, there's a bad news side to the coming worldwide judgment. But let, let me start with why it's good news. God is going to put an end to all evil, friends. God is going to put an end to all evil. Jesus is going to reign as the perfectly righteous king over a new heaven, a new earth. Christ followers who have suffered any kind of, of injustice in this world, you know, whether it's unfair lawsuits or discrimination or physical disabilities they've had to live with, abusive parents, poverty, religious persecution, you name it, you're going to be vindicated because Jesus Christ will make right all wrongs. Let, let me give you an extreme example of what I'm talking about. Uh, every month I get a magazine from a group called Voice of the Martyrs. This is an organization that supports persecuted Christ followers around the world. And I, I read just a little bit of that magazine at a time. It's all I can take. I'll read a little bit and then I'll pray for the person it's described and I'll read a little more next time I pick it up and, and pray. I pray, my, I pray my way through that magazine every month. And so this last week, I'm reading a story about Regina. Regina lives in northern Nigeria. She's a Christ follower. And one day, the Boko Haram burst into her village. And they began to haul people out of their homes, going home to home, saying, are you Muslim or are you Christian? And so they they got to her home, and she looked them in the eye, and she said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. They abducted her 18-year-old daughter, taking her away, presumably, as a sex slave. They took out a machete and slit the throat of her 16-year-old son. He died there right in front of her. They beat up her 12-year-old son so badly they left him for dead. By God's grace, he later got medical treatment. He's on crutches today. This is just a year ago. They put out one of the eyes of her 8-year-old son. Why? Because she said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, when Regina picks up her Bible and she opens to Psalm 96, and she reads that the Lord will judge the world in righteousness, she says, yes, fantastic. This is good news. You get it? Yes. This is great news. On the other hand, If God is finally going to call the world to account for every little bit of evil that's ever been done, oh, we're all in trouble because we've all got a track record that's far from perfect, right? You know, I once heard a preacher say, he said, imagine this, imagine that that you could limit your sinning to three sins a day, and pretty spectacular, right? Only three times a day do you, do you think something that's prideful or lustful or resentful. Only three times a day do you speak something that's profane or dishonest or, or gossipy. Or only three times a day do you do something that is selfish or hurtful or dishonoring to God. Only three times a day. Close to perfect, right? But he said, do the math, Three times a day. That's over a thousand sins on your track record each year. You live to be 80 years old. It's 80,000 sins on your record when you stand before God, who is the perfectly righteous, just God. Are you ready for that? 
See, somebody's got to pay for those 80,000 sins, be they small, medium, or, or large. And here's the really bad news. The bad news, according to the Bible, is that the penalty, the payment, is death. You know, it makes sense. You, you, you determine that you're going to go your way instead of God's way. You're going to defy the giver of life. You're going to unplug from the giver of life. Guess what the penalty is? Eternal death for those who disconnect from God by doing their own thing instead of his. So, so either you and I will die for all eternity or we'll be able to find a, a substitute who'd be willing to die in our place. But who'd be crazy enough to do that? There, there is only one person I know who is both qualified and willing to take our punishment. And this, this next week, Christians call it Holy Week. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did in order to become a savior, offering salvation to those who will trust in him. You know, it's interesting, in the closing verses of Psalm 96, they, 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 they kind of point to something that took place on the first day of Holy Week 2,000 years ago. Okay, we, we call the first day of Holy, Holy Week Palm Sunday. This, today, is, is Palm Sunday. The day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing full well that before the week was out, he would be put to death on a cross. He would die for die as a substitute for those who would surrender their lives to him. He would die the death we deserve to die. Well, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, people praised him as a, as a coming king. They put palm branches in his path as he rode on a donkey into town, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. They sang out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders got wigged out. They said indignantly to Jesus, you got to shut these people up. They're not supposed to say, this is blasphemy to worship a mere man. And you remember Jesus' response Luke chapter 19, verse 40, he says, if I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks are going to cry out. This is the part of the story, the Palm Sunday story that sounds to me a lot like the closing verses of Psalm 96. Look at it one more time. When, when, when the righteous king, when, when Jesus Christ comes to judge the world, not only will the stones cry out, but everything in all creation is going to praise him. Look at verses 10 to 13. Who, who will praise Jesus? The heavens, the earth, the sea, the fields, everything in the fields, the trees of the forest. All creation, David says, will rejoice before the Lord on this day of worldwide judgment. And friends, that will either be the best day of your life or the worst. And it will all depend on whether or not you've previously surrendered your life to the one who is Savior and King, the only Savior, the King above all kings. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer across our four campuses right now. In just a moment, we're going to conclude with a, a song of praise, which we'll sing from our hearts. And we'll collect our gifts as well, our physical gifts, fit for a king, I hope. But in this quiet moment before God, I want to invite you, if you've never surrendered to King Jesus, don't wait. 
The Bible says one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But if you wait too long, that will be forced surrender on your part. It will do you no good. So if you've never given your life to Christ, do it now. Do it like the people you saw get baptized today have done it. Say, Jesus, come in. What you did on the cross, you did for me. You took the death I deserve to die. I put my hope and my trust in you. Come to the throne of my life. I get off the throne. You're the only king worthy to sit on that throne and call the shots in my life. I give my life to you today. Would you do that right now? The quietness of your heart. And those of us who are believers, how are we doing at singing this song, this song of proclamation? David says the world needs to hear it. you got to sing it from your heels. you got to leave our worship services after a weekend service determined to go into your world, to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your school, among your friends, and talk of Jesus. Go on a go team. Take the message far and wide. Bring a friend on your arm on Easter weekend. God, right now, as we're bowed before you, would you put on our hearts, the, you know, just on the screen of our imagination, the faces of two or three people that we can invite even in this next week to come with us next weekend to our Easter services. God, we love you with all our hearts. It's a privilege to sing your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.